0: conversation with my brother three weeks ago. And the conversation was at times an, was an argument. And uh, I wouldn't describe it as an argument. I would describe it as a conversation that at times got really pretty heated. Uh, If you don't know my brother, uh, he's a great guy. He wants nothing to do uh, with what we're doing here this morning. And what happens uh, typically with my brother is that we will stuff and stuff and stuff for a couple years, and then things will explode. And so we knew it it was about time uh, to have it out, and so we, we hopped in, in my car and we drove and we talked about everything that we had not talked about for the last two years. And uh, we had it out. It was a, a fruitful uh, time. He, I think he would, he would say that as well. Um, but in the conversation, uh, my brother asked me this. Do you really believe what you say you believe? Or are you just playing a game? Or are you just saying what people want to hear? Is this really what you believe? He, in some ways, uh, accused me of putting on a show... Um, Because it was in my best interest to continue to tell you what you wanted to hear. And my brother works in the fashion industry, and so he knows what it is to sell. And so he drew a parallel between him selling dresses that he thought were hideous and me selling Jesus on Sunday mornings. That I really didn't actually like what I was putting out there. I didn't actually believe what I was putting out there, but it was just in my best interest to keep it going. That I'd come too far to actually question what I believe. Um, And he basically accused me of, of being a televangelist who was pumping Jesus because it was in my best interest. And again, I've just come too far to stop. Now there's a whole crowd of people cheering me on, so I'm not asking the real questions, and I don't actually believe what I say I believe. I got upset. Uh, I got really upset. I got really defensive. Um, it, at first, at first, there was like a it was just shock that someone was saying that to me. And then I moved into like a pity party. Like you have no idea what I've gone through. And then it moved into I was just ticked. How dare you accuse me of that? And I got really defensive. And anyway, I walked away from the conversation. And I've been thinking about the conversation for probably uh, three weeks now. You ever have a conversation and then you... Keep having conversations about that conversation, and so I kept having conversations about this conversation, because man, I was ticked and uh, and a couple things occurred to me um, the first the first in reflecting on the conversation, I realized that my brother was actually asking me a question and not making an accusation. He was looking at me saying, is this real? Is this real for you? Because it's not been real for me. And I was disappointed that in the conversation I got so defensive And couldn't see his question through his accusation. The second thing that occurred to me in having a conversation about the conversation. Is that why did I get so defensive when he accused me of not believing what I say I believe? Why did I get so defensive when that happened? That occurs for me weekly, daily if I've spent more time in prayer. In fact, all the time it seems to me that the Holy Spirit is reminding me, Travis, you're not believing what you say you believe. And the evidence that I'm not believing what I say I believe is always my behavior, because your beliefs guide your behavior. And so you can say you believe all kinds of things, but what you really believe is evidenced by your behavior. So this is how it typically goes for me, and I would guess this is how it typically goes for you, but I'm living in fear. I'm scared I'm going to miss out. I'm living in a fear of rejection. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, it's all kinds of fears that I face. All kinds of fears that you face. And in the place of prayer, the Holy Spirit reminds me, Travis, you're not believing what you say you believe. About who God is. About where your identity is at. Or maybe it goes something like this. I'm still living in shame and regret. Still heavy carrying my sins. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, you're not believing what you say you believe. You're insulting my cross. You're proud. And you should believe the truth about what I've done and you should believe Me seems like it's nearly a daily occurrence for me that the Holy Spirit would come and remind me to not believe (laughs) everything I tell myself, but to believe the truth, to believe the things that I announce in creeds. How many of you have experienced something like this? I found myself saying, why did I get so upset? When my brother said what the Holy Spirit seems to say to me on a weekly basis, you're not believing what you say you believe. Your behavior is showing me that you don't actually believe what you say you believe. It's so funny that for many of us, we can say things like, I mean, for many of us, we are trusting That Jesus has gone before us and prepared a place for us. So many of us would say in, in creed, we would say we believe that Jesus, as the Son of God, rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Don't know where that's at, but He's there. And He's preparing a place for you. You trust Him with your full salvation with your eternal security, but then you don't trust Him with your money. Do you get it? If you don't trust Him with your money, you don't trust Him. It can be easy to say we believe certain things, but our behavior often shows us something else about what we really Believe. For some time, and I. For years and years and years, I thought to myself that my behavior would look differently if I really, really, truly believed in forever. That forever. Would change the way I behave if I really, truly believed what Jesus said about eternity. I just, there's something, I'm just unsettled. Something should be different. I say I believe this, but if I really believed this, then my fears should look different than they do. I say I believe in, my, in forever, but my, if I really believe that, then my finances should look differently than they do. I say I believe in forever, but my, my Christian faith should look differently than it does if I really believed what I say I believe. We're beginning a series of sermons this morning on forever. And living in light of eternity. And I will say up front, I am preaching to myself. And you're welcome to listen in. Because I'm convinced that our lives would look differently if we really believed what we say we believe. If I really believed in a heaven, if I really believed in a hell, if I really believed that you were going to one or the other, my life would look differently. It's not that I don't believe in heaven. It's not that I don't believe in hell. It's that I find my belief in forever to be inconsistent. There are times when it brings me comfort to think about heaven, and we do. And there are times when it's really uncomfortable to think about heaven, and so I don't. What's bothering me is how selective I am, how inconsistent I am. That at my Uncle Rick's funeral, it brought me great comfort to think about eternity. And at the last Dodger game, as I was staring at the crowds, wondering how many knew Jesus. And at a Dodger game, it's very few. There are very few Dodger (laughs) fans who know Jesus. I only know a handful. it was making me uncomfortable and so either way it feels like comfort is king and leisure is Lord and I employ thoughts about eternity when it brings me comfort and I run away from thoughts about eternity when it's uncomfortable There are times when it's convenient for us to believe in something beyond this life. And then there are other times where it is not convenient to believe that there is something beyond this life. Does anyone understand what I'm saying? Do you get it? Do you really believe what you... Say you believe. Is it more than a country song for you? Um, I want to put an image up on the screen. How many of you remember this uh, scene? Man, this is this is huge right here. This is from the Karate Kid Part Two, and this should bring back memories for you. Um, if it doesn't, then we'll pray for you after the service because you had a horrible childhood. <laughs> you you remember the scene because. Uh, Miyagi bets on Danielson that he's able to break all six slabs of ice. And there's money on the line. Um, Daniel thinks that he can't do it. Miyagi, of course, does. And uh, so he, he takes his best swing and he gets through these, these six blocks of ice. And I just remember being fascinated with this scene. Not just karate, I was fascinated with that too. With this scene. If you didn't uh, see this movie, maybe you were fascinated with the power team growing up. If you didn't see this movie, maybe you were fascinated with the guys who break bricks, right? Um, Slabs of ice, wood planks with their bare hands. Sometimes with their foreheads. Sometimes with mule kicks. Whatever it is, I just so loved watching people break bricks, wood, and ice with their hands and feet. And of course, my fascination with with this led to my own attempts, right? And was sent away with a stinging or, or even worse, fractured hands um, because you had something to prove. And so I can remember on more than one occasion practicing that breathing technique and then trying to swing through something. <laughs> As I reflected on this, I thought to myself, even to this day when I'm doing yard work and a branch won't fit in the container... <laughs> I take it really serious. And, and it's like I, I bring the thunder. You know, you've got something to prove. This branch will be broken in half. I will subdue it. I, I bring the thunder. There are some benefits to the weight gain, namely Power. And uh, I bring it when a branch won't fit in the barrel. You know that what you need in order to get through the ice is not power. Danielson taught us that, right? It's not here, it's here. You know that what it takes to get through the ice is not power. What they say is that you need to aim through the ice. You need to aim past it. In order to break through the ice, you aim past it so that your momentum carries through it and doesn't stop at the object. For those of you who are baseball players, you've heard this phrase, swing through the ball. You want your momentum to carry through what you're swinging at and not stop at what you're swinging at. I am convinced that in order to get through this life, we have to swing past it. That the only way to do the Christian life is to aim beyond this life. This whole sermon series will be an attempt to help you aim past this life. If you aim at this object, this life, you will not break through it. If you aim beyond this life, you will break through. Timothy Jones writes, We cannot live rightly until we aim past life. Eternity provides the only goal that makes ultimate sense of our lives. C.S. Lewis, who I will quote often during this series, said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. To make this point, um, that the only way to do This Christian life. The only way to live here and now is not to live for the here and now. The only way to do this is to aim past this life. I want to look at the life of Paul, and then I want to look at the words of Peter to the early church. The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Outwardly we are wasting away. Living, living, living is a sort of dying. You know this. You know this because you're trying to escape this. Living is a sort of dying you are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our gaze on things that are unseen. We aim past this life. We stare intently at the things that we cannot see. It's the only way to get the Christian life right. You cannot live the Christian life by believing that you live your best life now. You do not live your best life now. That's nonsense. I would love to put the Apostle Paul in the same room as Joel Olstein. And I'd love to watch the conversation that happens. You do not live your best life now. We have a rich heritage of believers who aimed past this life. And were able to endure. And were witnesses to the end. Colossians 3, Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Again, fix your gaze on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Philippians 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this. Or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following My example, brothers and sisters, and just as You have us as a model, keep Your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Is there any question as to what Paul's motivation was? Did he think he was living his best life now? I'm so glad he didn't believe that. We wouldn't have these words. We wouldn't have the New Testament. It was written from jails. From prisons, he wrote these words. Words that still cut to the heart today. Paul broke through in this life because he was aiming past it. He had an impact because he was aiming past this life. He was so heavenly minded that he was of maximum earthly good. Don't believe the old adage that you can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Paul was so heavenly minded that he was of maximum earthly good. Enter C.S. Lewis' quote. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. If eternity is going to impact our everyday lives, which I am hoping that it will, we're going to need a few things. Because we know how to do this, right? You know how to do this. You know how to aim past something. You know how to swing through something. You know how to live for more than the moment. You really do. You know how to do this. There are some essential ingredients that help us do this, but you know how to do this. You need a hope. A real hope. Hope is where desire and and expectation meet. But you need an eternal hope in order to aim past this life. As I thought about what I was hoping to do through this series, I I want a few things to, to happen for us As a group, but the first thing you need in order to aim past this life is you need vision. If you're here, you know what it is to swing through something. If you're here and you're on a budget, you know what it is to aim past. You know what it is to swing through. If you're here and you're on a diet, you know what it is to aim past. You know what it is to swing through. If you're here and you're in a relationship, a long-term relationship, you know what it is to swing past. You know what it is to aim through. You know what it is to forfeit what feels good in the moment because what you really want is so much bigger than that. If you've held a job for any time, you know what it is to swing through. You know what it is to aim past. You know what it is to get through it. And so in those areas, I find that I need a few things. One, I need vision. The second thing I need is a taste. The third thing I need is an expectation and anticipation based on that taste. The the next thing I need is some constraint or self-control. And I need community in order to bring about change. And if we want the way we live to be affected by eternity, if we want forever to change the way we live, we need those things. You need a vision of heaven. You need a vision. Something that fascinates you. It's not good enough We will never aim through this life if heaven is just better than the alternative. And that's what it is for most of us. You'll never aim past this life if it's just better than hell. Well, I've got two choices. I'm going to go with heaven. Not that into either, but it's better than the other. You need a vision that fascinates you you need to get caught up you need a picture it's what drives us forward in every other area you see yourself hitting the game winning shot and that's what keeps you on the court practicing you can literally count time down take a long three pointer and you you literally can visualize you literally can visualize wearing seeing yourself wearing Those size six jeans. Not only can you see it, you can feel it. When you see it, you think I'm going to feel so good about myself. You can see yourself debt free and the way you'll be living. The way that uh, Dave Ramsey does this is he says you should live like no one else so you can live like no one else or something like that. Is that right? Is that what Dave Ramsey says? He He paints a picture of what life will be like if you make these sacrifices in the moment. And it calls us through the pain of transformation. The other thing I think I need in order to aim through something is just a taste. I just need a taste. And we've been given a taste of eternity. We've been given a down payment. We've been given a deposit. What happened to Jesus will happen To us, it's what we believe. We've been given right here in the now a taste of eternity. For some of us, to keep us going, you need to get on the scale and see that you've lost a few pounds. You've got 40 to go, but you need a taste of what it feels like to swing through. The taste gives us this expectation, this anticipation of of what it will be like to reach our goal. What it will be like to be debt free, what it will be like to be in those jeans, what it'll be like to hit the game winning shot, what it will be like to have your finances in order, what it will be like to have your family back together. And that expectation, that anticipation, provides for us some constraint. It helps us be self controlled, to eat right to practice hard, to do whatever it is that you're having to do that is bringing about momentary suffering, right? We just just drove Mike to St. Louis and we were eating and drinking God knows what to stay awake on the road. The more caffeine it had, the weirder it was, the more likely it was that we were going to buy it and try to drink it just as a means of driving through the night for a couple nights in a row. The first night, I remember waking up, we were in Utah, and Jared was driving, and I woke up, and you know, you, woke, you wake up feeling like, maybe I let my partner down, and so I immediately asked Jared, how are you doing? And Jared tells me through groans, I'm doing good, you know, I was like, what is wrong with you? I don't know, man, my stomach hurts, you know. <laughs> He had like three Red Bulls in him. And so we had to pull over for Jared to throw up Red Bull. We waited around because he was sick. But, but we knew that when we got to Denver, we were going to eat at Steuben's. And I had been to Steuben's before. I tasted it before. And I could tell those guys confidently, you need to hold out. Quit buying this garbage at gas stations. We're saving up for students. And by saving up, I mean don't fill up now. Because what you're about to taste is so far beyond Red Bulls and rolls or whatever is. I mean, we, we were eating is bad, it took years off of our lives. We'll meet Jesus sooner because of that road trip. But do you you understand how anticipation and expectation provide for us constraint and self-control? How we're able to say no to something because we know what we're going to say yes to. In Hebrews, we read that by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, listen to this, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He was able to say no in the moment because he knew what he was saying yes to. My thought is that our vision of heaven is so impoverished that we have no ability to say no to things in this life. No ability to say no in this life because we have such a pathetic idea about the new heavens and the new earth. And I can't wait to tell you what the Bible says. I can't wait to straighten you out because I think you've gone to the bank with those country songs you listen to. The other thing I think we need not just the constraint, the self-control, but we need community. We need people around us egging us on. How much easier is it to diet or to do the things that we feel like we need to do to aim past this life when we're doing it in community? I'm so thankful to be a part of a community that is aiming past, aiming through this life. We have a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. Men and women who've gone before us. Who had an impact in this life because they were aiming past it. Who did something profound here and now because they knew that here and now was not all there was. I'd like to use um, another image from the 80's to help you understand why we're talking about eternity. This image from the 80's is a shopping spree. Do you remember when it seemed to be that when you won a game show, what you won was a shopping spree? And what you did, you know, if you won Double Dare or if you won one of these game shows, is you went through a store and grabbed as much as you could in the time that was allotted. Anyone remember the heyday of the shopping spree? You won a shopping spree. And now you fly through the store, and the goal is to get as much into that cart. And again, my brother and I, not just obsessed with the Karate Kid, but totally obsessed with the shopping spree as well. Thinking, well, where would I go in Toys R Us? What would I fill my cart with? What would I shovel in? And my thought is that for many of us, because we think this life is all there is, Well, we say there's something more than this life. But really, functionally, I believe that we believe that this life is all there is. So we have a pack-it-all-in mentality. So the idea is to run through this life to get as much as you can. The idea is to experience. The idea is to possess. The idea is to accomplish because, doggone it, this is all you've got. So fit it all in. Run through this life. Not like Paul said. Paul said run it like a race and throw off everything that hinders. Because we know about the glory. And it's going to far surpass any sort of suffering we've faced in this life. So get rid of it all. Paul's idea here is to get rid of the shopping cart. To take only the things that help you march through this life. Don't do this, says Paul. Don't live just to experience, to accomplish, and to whatever it is, seize the day. The pack it all in mentality is producing all all kinds of carnage in our culture. The pack it all in mentality, the idea that this is all you have and you better make it count, so you experience, and you accomplish, and you possess because you've got one life to live, is producing all kinds of carnage in our lives. The first thing that it's producing in many of us is disappointment because you're asking this life to do what it was never meant to do. And so we live perpetually frustrated, perpetually disappointed. We were hopeless because you're asking an appetizer to be the main course. You're asking your relationships to deliver what God never designed them to deliver. You're treating this life like it's a destination and all it is is preparation for the next life. And you're ruining this life. You're frustrated, you're cynical, you're hopeless because you're asking this to do what it was never designed to do. This life is about preparation and this life is about longing. You're kidding yourself if you think that it's not. Paul says that we're living in tents. The only thing that tent camping is good for is to get me thinking about my own bed. I hate tent camping. I've got five kids under eight. The only thing it's good for is to get me dreaming about home. The only thing this life is good for is to get you dreaming about about home quit treating it like it's the destination start allowing God to prepare you in this life for what's next the other thing I didn't know so many people hated tent camping if you forget forever and I would assert that we have You'll be totally preoccupied with yourself. It's eternity that reminds us how small we are. And that what happens here, if you're living with this pack-it-all-in mentality, it's not about you. It's not about what you can grab. It's not about what you can accomplish. It's not about what you can possess. There's something much bigger going on. I know nothing like eternity to remind us that there's something bigger going on. I know nothing better than eternity to scare us straight. And I'm not just talking about hell. You'll question the goodness of God if you forget forever. If this is all there is, this is it. And you've got to pack it all in. And you run through the store and you fill your cart. You will question the goodness of God. Unless you live with the knowledge that God's promises only reach their fulfillment in the age to come, you'll feel like God hooked you into some sort of cosmic bait and switch. You will question His goodness if you forget forever. You'll be controlling and fearful. You'll live with a deep fear that you're missing out because this is all you've got. This is it. This is all you've got. You'll live... And a constant fear, and if this is all you got, then you better control it, right? It's funny to watch Tiffany and I in the way the month works in our house, but, you know, at the beginning of the month, when the fridge is stocked, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever, you know? And then as the month goes on, it's like, hey, we shouldn't do that with the bread, because we've got to make lunches with it tomorrow, Right? What happens when we think we only have a little bit left? What happens when we start to function in scarcity and try to possess all that we can to buffer ourselves is that we try to control because we're scared of running out. Some of you are flopping from fear to control, back to fear, back to control, because you've forgotten forever. Probably the most dangerous one, if you forget forever. If you forget forever then you'll live this life as if there are no consequences for what you do and don't do in this life. If you live with the pack-it-all-in mentality and it's about experience, possess, and accomplish, you'll forget that there are consequences for the way that you live this life. A day of reckoning is coming and eternity infuses this life with a seriousness that comes in no other way. What we do here will echo into eternity. I've just come to this place if if I cannot use my notes. I've just come to this place where I feel like my life doesn't make sense in light of eternity. If there's not something beyond this life, if we cease to exist when we die, then none of this makes sense. It really doesn't. There's, there's nothing about this that makes sense. And as the staff gets bigger and the budget gets bigger, I find myself thinking, if there's nothing beyond this, then this just doesn't make any sense. If there's nothing beyond this, then sending my good friends Mike and Katie away just doesn't make any sense. If this is all there is, then let's pack it all in. And I'm not up for this self-sacrificing, you know, uh, I don't want to run the race like this if in fact this is all there is. At the same time, I'm thinking to myself, if there is something beyond this life, which is what I say I believe... Hopefully I actually believe it for your sake and mine. But if there is something beyond this life, then again, my life doesn't make sense. I'm just in this place of either way. What I'm doing right now makes no sense in light of eternity. What we're doing, what we're not doing, is not making any sense to me. Of course, as we study forever, my hope is that you would get a vision. My hope is that you would get a taste of eternity. My hope is that it would breed, grow in you in anticipation and expectation. And that that expectation, that anticipation would help you live with constraint and self-control saying yes to the things that are important, saying no to the things that are not. Isn't that what funerals do for us? Isn't that what happens when we attend a funeral? Certain things aren't important, and certain things are. When we number our days and live in light of eternity, that's what it will produce in us. And then I want to do it as a community. I want to hear that cloud of witnesses cheering us on, And I want to run together because I think it's the best way to affect change. I also don't want to leave Jesus out of this. We're not leaving Jesus out. This isn't a study of eternal life. Because eternal life doesn't begin the day you die. It begins the day you meet Jesus. Jesus, obsessed with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, with this beautiful picture of what the kingdom is like. Always starting His sermons by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. These people were facing oppression. All kinds of difficult circumstances. Jesus often started His preaching by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. I imagine it started to feel really predictable. Like two guys walked into a bar. The kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus said to a group of people, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. We're not studying the Scriptures, just looking for codes and timelines. We're studying, even if we get into the book of Revelation, we're looking for Jesus. We're looking for the life that comes from Him. John 17, Jesus says this, Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And I'll read it out loud because we're not sick of it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus, uh, we want to know You. We're excited about heaven because You're there. We're not excited about hell because You're not. Your presence is what we desire. We want a taste of eternity now. We, want, we know and we want Your kingdom to break in now. But we know that it's only a taste that Your promises will reach their fulfillment in the age to come. So we don't want to be asking things to satisfy us in a way that only You can. Jesus, would You come and lead us through this mystery? Would we be pointed to You as we study forever? Would we come out more fascinated with You? Thank You that eternal life is knowing uh, You. And we want to know You more as we study eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Noel made jokes about my preaching. Andy cussed, so he's not ever going to make an announcement again. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good thing we let the junior hires go before... Noel started cussing. Um, But I do have a bunch of sermons with F's in them, which I don't know if he knew that. But we'll be talking about forever. And today was laying a foundation. We'll be talking about forever and your fate. We'll speak for two weeks on the topic of heaven. We're going to talk about forever and your finances. We're going to talk about forever and your fears. We're going to talk about forever and your frame on suffering. We'll approach again forever and your fate, and we will talk about hell. Uh, Andrew Wilson um, from London, England, will be here facilitating a Monday night conversation on hell called "H.E. Double Hockey Sticks." Why hell needs to re-enter the Christian's vocabulary. He has a PhD in warning passages, so he's more qualified to do this. He's also had long conversations and debates with Rob Bell, and so this is a topic that's familiar to him. So he'll be here on a Monday night facilitating a conversation about hell, and then we're going to talk about forever and your faith, because you've heard that uh, faith without works is dead. I believe that faith without heaven is also dead. There's no point in it. So there it is, forever and your foundation. Thanks, Noel, for mocking me and for cussing. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. There is a heavenly city That I'm compelled to find Though I love the flowers and trees And the smell of the grinding sea And all the beautiful things here in life I